turn to uh, Luke 24, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, very last chapter, and we are only looking at verses 36 through 49 from that text that Elizabeth read for us. So let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for reminding us that Jesus is worthy, that he was the one who could take up the scrolls, that he was the one who could, who could open them for us, the only one that could do that. And he accomplished that through his life, death, and his resurrection. So God, just as you did with the disciples opening their minds to understand the scriptures, I pray that you would do that with us this morning. Open our minds to understand your word. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So in their 2013 book, Who's Bigger? Uh, Two researchers, Steve uh, Skiena and Charles Ward, uh, put together the top 100 historical figures uh, of all time. And they did this using uh, certain algorithms such as Google searches. So how many times were these people searched on Google? Uh, Wikipedia, Wikipedia inquiries, because that's always super reliable. Uh, websites visited and then websites that linked to these particular figures. So I'll just give you the top five, starting with number five. Number five is Abraham Lincoln. Number four William Shakespeare, number three, Muhammad, number two, Napoleon, and then number one is Jesus. Now, if you think, hey, I was born in 2013, um, and I don't think that's a reliable list because we're, we're ahead of that now, um, so I don't trust a 10-year-old list, but if you were to go and do a Google search right now of a top 10 most prominent figures in all of history, if Jesus is at number one, He's at least in the top three, at least every list I looked at. So we have to ask ourselves this question this morning on Easter Sunday. Why is Jesus still so popular? I think there's many reasons for that, but I think I believe that one of the main reasons is what we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. N.T. Wright says in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he says the only possible reason why early Christianity began and took the shape it did is that the tomb really was empty and that people really did meet Jesus alive again and that though admitting it involves accepting a challenge at the level of worldview itself, the best historical explanation for all these phenomena is that Jesus was indeed bodily raised from the dead. And you might say, well, of course you would say that. You're a Christian and you're a pastor on top of that as well, so of course you're going to believe in the resurrection. But I would even say that even in the attempts to explain away the resurrection become proofs in and of themselves to the, to the validity of the resurrection. I always have to ask the question, why spend so much time on something creating theories if you believe it not to be true? So I just want to read you some of these theories. These are the most popular. I'm not going to go into a huge explanation of each one, but just so you're familiar with them. Uh, The first is, is what's called the empty tomb theory. 
that, Je- that says that Jesus' body was thrown away amongst many bodies and the disciples created the resurrection story. Or another empty tomb theory is that the women who first went to the tomb uh, had the wrong address. They went to the wrong tomb. The second is the legend theory. So that's just simply that the resurrection is simply a fabrication, something to make us feel good, a good uh, harrowing story. Uh, Another one is the twin theory that says Jesus died and was buried. That really happened. But shortly after, his long-lost identical twin brother came on the scene and was worshipped as the risen Christ. Then you had the hallucination theory that Jesus' disciples and Paul uh, later experienced hallucinations. They didn't really see the risen Christ. It was, it was a dream. Uh, uh, there's the existential resurrection theory, which is popular today, that says that Jesus rose not in history, but only in our hearts. Then you have one that's called spiritual resurrection theory, the disciples stole the body theory, which is ridiculous if you think about it. The authorities hid the body theory, which is another ridiculous claim. The swoon theory that says that Jesus didn't actually die when he was on the cross, but he actually fainted, and that the, the, the coolness of the tomb revived him, and that's, that's what happened. Then you have the Passover plot, that Jesus planned to fake his own death in order to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. So essentially, he took the Old Testament prophecies and used them as a check, checklist to say, all right, I'm going to do all of these things to, to, uh, to, to just deceive everybody. And then lastly... And my personal favorite is that Jesus was an alien. (laughs) These are all real theories that real people believe in. But when weighed against the facts, when weighed against the facts concerning Jesus' death and resurrection, every one of them falls short. And a few of those facts we have before us this morning in our text which is good because this is, uh, you know, they all take, take place di- directly after Jesus' resurrection too. So that's a good thing to think about because um, it's all taking place in the midst of heavy doubt, utter confusion, and general misunderstanding. Not on the part of those who were not following Jesus. This is all happening uh, on, on the part of those who wanted the resurrection to be true, his followers. So I think that's a good ground in which to discover these true things that Jesus says about the resurrection. So Jesus offers us three of his own primary sources that are found in and of himself that let us know that the resurrection is actually true. And these can be found in your worship guide if you're taking notes. The first one is his presence. The second is his body. And the third is his word. His presence, his body, and his word. So first, his presence. So in reading through the entirety of chapter 24, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't waste time making his presence known after his resurrection. So after finding the tomb empty, Luke records in verses 13 through 15, that very day, Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So after his resurrection, in all the gospel accounts, 
Jesus, Jesus makes it priority number one to make his presence known to his followers. And he doesn't waste time doing this. He wants them to immediately know that all that he has been telling them has come true. So rising from the dead for us, it, it can be a hard concept for us to believe today. Uh, I think sometimes it can be a little easier because there's so much more, um, I guess, spirituality taking place. And so we, we like to, to, to kind of expand our minds in that way. So we, we might not have as hard of a time believing um, that someone rises from the dead. But in the first century, that was an impossible thought. Not many people went around thinking that someone was actually going to physically rise up from a grave. And this is true for the disciples as well. Even though Jesus told them multiple times that this was going to happen, that I am going to die and I am going to rise, they still have a hard time believing it to be true. You can see it in the disciples' emotional state in verse 17. Luke tells us they were looking sad. And you only look sad when someone close to you like that has died. And you don't expect to see them again. And in verse 21, they said, when they were walking with Jesus, they hadn't yet recognized him, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had these high hopes for this man, but now he's gone. And now we don't know what to do. So needless to say, they're a deflated bunch. So this is not actually that unusual because many in the ancient world didn't believe that there was life beyond the grave, for that matter. New Test, uh, and N.T. Wright, again, he points this out. And he's got a great book on the resurrection, by the way. It's very thick. But I would think if you're a reader or whatever, it's worth the read. But he says this. Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false, the resurrection. Many believed that the dead were non-existent, so outside Judaism, nobody believed in resurrection. No one. So you can see why it's so important that Jesus reveals himself to his followers and does it very quickly. And it stands very clear in the text that nothing and no one but the, but the risen Jesus himself could convince his bewildered followers of the fact that he had indeed risen. So in chapter 24 alone, you have several testimonies that happen. You have the testimony of heavenly beings, angels saying he has risen, he is not here. You have the testimony of the women. You have the testimony of Peter who runs to, to see if the tomb was actually empty. Then you have the, the testimony of the men of Emmaus who actually walk with the risen Christ. And none of those were sufficient enough to convince his disciples. They were excited, yes, but not getting ahead of themselves. They were still asking the question, is it really true? Has he really come back? And it's Jesus himself who, who personally comes to answer this question for them. We, we see that in verse 36 as he simply just stands among them. He comes into where they're all gathered and he just stands among them. And, and one of the first things that Jesus has to do is let his disciples know that he's not a ghost. Because even though they've heard he's resurrected, they really have no idea what a resurrected person would look like. 
So when they see Jesus, their automatic response is that he is merely an apparition. That he's a spirit that only had the appearance of a person. And you can see it in their reaction. So much so that Jesus addresses their reaction when he asks them, Why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Because Jesus knows their hearts. And his first answer to his own questioning is by telling them simply, look at me. And not just to look at him, but to look specifically at his hands and his feet where the scars from the crucifixion would still be. An article I read this week pointed out that the body that God raised was the same body that was on the cross, but this same body was also transformed and healed, no longer subject to death, but it still had the wounds from his crucifixion. So there was, there was, there was continuity and there was discontinuity with the person that the disciples knew. And because of this, their response was fear. Like this looks like Jesus, his body is different, but he still has the, the scars, and this is, this, is, this is really scary to us. So in telling them to look at his hands and feet, Jesus is attempting to shake his disciples out of their fearful stupor. To clear their vision so that they can see the reality of what's happening. So that they can see the reality of the resurrection. So I wonder this morning what obscures your vision of seeing the reality of what's happening here. What causes you not to see what's happening in the resurrection of the Son of God? Is it because you think you're so good that you don't need Him? That you don't need a Savior to die for you and to, to, be, to, to rise from the dead in order to give you life? Is it your arrogance that you think coming to church on Easter and Christmas meets your spiritual quota for the year, and somehow God smiles upon that. It could be uh, money. It could be your career. It could be the relationships that you're seeking to have. It could be, and I know this sounds silly sometimes to uh, older folks, it could be the Instagram profile that you're seeking to create that gets in the way of seeing the reality of the resurrection. Maybe it's even one of the theories that I mentioned earlier. Maybe that's where you are. But to miss the resurrection is to miss the entirety of what it means to be a Christian. You can't have Christianity apart from the resurrection of Jesus. Paul is so convinced of this, the Apostle Paul, about the, about the resurrection, and it's Paul who came to faith in Christ because of the resurrection. The resurrected Jesus appears to Paul, and Paul comes to faith in Jesus. So Paul is so convinced that the resurrection is true that he's confident enough to say in his letters, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we are all most to be pitied. That's confidence. And then the disciples, after, after the Gospels here and jumping in, immediately jumping into to the Acts of the Apostles in the book of Acts, the disciples are so convinced that most of them literally give their lives 
for the sake of the gospel because they know and believe the resurrection to be true. Are you willing to do that? Is the resurrection true enough for you that you would give your life for it? And Jesus says that continually to his followers. When he's thinning the crowd, Jesus is always saying, take up your cross and follow me. Give your life for me. Are you willing to do that? Now, I would say that's a good question to answer and to be honest about it. Because if you're not willing to do that, then I would say you're not a Christian. And that's not just me, Kevin, up here speaking, trying to condemn you. That's actually what Jesus says. If you can't take up your cross and follow him, you're not worthy to be called his disciple. And if that's where you are this morning, I would say, keep listening, even if you're mad at me, because Jesus gives us a second source that proves his resurrection, and that is his body. Look at verses 39 through 43. Jesus says this, see my, he says to his disciples, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now this... this aspect of Jesus's response may make some of us uncomfortable. I know at least two of my family members that don't like to be touched uh, because we don't, we don't like people to touch us because we don't like people encroaching upon our personal space. To be touched is, is, to, is, to, is to enter into an intimate act, which is exactly why Jesus invites his disciples to do just that. Touch me and see, he says. Jesus wants them to make contact with an actual body so that they know for sure that he's not an apparition, that he's not a ghost, that he's not simply a spirit that is floating around them. Because if Jesus isn't really present, or this was some sort of you know, first century Jedi mind trick, then to say the words and invite, touch me, would not be a wise move on Jesus's part and not only that they are touching a transformed body as well so apart from his scars Jesus's body is made new so not only are they touching a a real human physical body they are touching a renewed body which is pointing them forward to what will happen to all of our bodies in eternity that we will all be renewed and Jesus wants his disciples to experience all of this And just as a side note, this simple gesture alone that Jesus makes, it throws out nine of the 11 theories that I mentioned earlier. Just this simple act of touching Jesus makes nine of those 11 theories untrue. And these are all untrue, but this just makes them really untrue. And this is important because it lets us know that, his, that Jesus' coming back to life was not merely a resuscitation of a corpse, but the transformation 
of a real body. Paul describes Jesus' resurrection body in this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 42-46. Paul says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Paul is saying that Jesus' resurrection body, and because Jesus has a resurrected body, that you too will have a body like this. So for the disciples to touch this real transformed body was to further confirm the truth and reality of the resurrection of Jesus. But also, Jesus having his disciples touch his resurrected body is a reminder that he is still with them. That he he was resuming relationships with them. That he has not left them forever. That while the cross brought a disruption, a little interruption, to their relationship, the resurrection restores, renews, and reshapes their relationship. So here is their friend. Here is their friend Jesus, who they saw die and be put in a tomb, now standing before them in the flesh. So Luke tells us that the disciples are so overwhelmed by this with joy, which is an unusual way to put it, that this actually impeded their faith. It, it actually made it hard for them to believe. Their, their joy was, was, was so extravagant at this moment. They were so glad that everything appeared to them too wonderful to be true. This can't be happening. This is insane. Nobody's resurrected from the dead. This is unheard of. But Jesus is here. He's real. We're touching him. And because of this, Jesus makes the most human move you can make at this particular time by asking, do you have anything to eat? We all like to eat. And this shows us again that the risen Jesus was not a disembodied spirit. I, I, the, the, the thought of uh, uh, nearly headless Nick in the Harry Potter uh, books came to mind. Nor was he even an angel here. Ne- neither of those can eat can actually put food in their bodies. This was the true and risen Christ in a true and risen body. Uh, Professor uh, Esau McCauley said in his New York Times opinion piece this week, he, he said, I thought it was pretty helpful, he says it's common, even in Christian circles, to think of the afterlife as a disembodied bliss in a paradise filled with naked baby angels tickling the strings of harps as our souls bounce from cloud to cloud. But Christianity has never taught a disembodied future in heaven. Our beliefs are more radical. And this is true because of Jesus' real resurrected body. And this confirms that, that Luke's basic point in his gospel writing and in, his, and in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, was, was his basic point was the physical reality 
of the risen Jesus. Luke wanted to make this very clear to his readers, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus is alive. Even in Acts chapter 2, verses 31 through 32, Luke records Peter's sermon, who is using the physical resurrection of Jesus as proof of the truth and reality of the gospel. Peter being someone who has just witnessed all of these events take place, and then he preaches his first sermon. So Peter says, and then Luke writes for him, and then Peter is speaking about David here. So now Peter is pointing us back to uh, the Old Testament to prove the resurrection to those who are hearing. And he writes this, or says this, He foresaw, speaking of King David, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Speaking about Jesus. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Witnesses of what? Jesus' physical body. Peter was a real person. This is not a fable. This is not make-believe. This is not a fairy tale. Historically accurate. This happened in real time and space to real people. They had eyes to see, and they saw the risen Christ. And some of them even touched him. Well, Jesus' third proof is probably my favorite, because not only, not only does it show us the resurrection to be true again, but it also shows us the sufficiency of his word, the Bible. Look at verses 44 through 49. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, meaning this is in the Bible, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So one, one uh, Bible scholar I was reading this week made a helpful observation concerning uh, the lack of Bible references by the gospel writers concerning the resurrection. So, and the reason this is unusual is because up to this point, in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have quoted the Bible heavily to make clear of who Jesus was and what he came to do in his death on the cross. They have made clear that this is all happening according to the scriptures. They don't do that with the resurrection. And the reason why they don't do that with the resurrection in the gospel, uh, John actually tells us this in his gospel in John 16.9. He tells us that, uh, that the reason for this is that they did not yet understand the scripture that taught that Jesus must rise from the dead. Hopefully you caught that in the text because Jesus had to uh, open their minds to understand this. And then once they understood this, they were unstoppable. Death couldn't even stop them. But this isn't so with Jesus when it comes to the scriptures. The Bible is actually the first place that Jesus points his followers to confirm the resurrection. 
We see this with the two of, two of, uh, the, uh, of them on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 27, uh, that says, In beginning with Moses, which is the law, and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus gives these two disciples on the road to Emmaus this kind of crash course in biblical theology, which is to say, Jesus is the point of all of the Bible. Everything that you're reading here is talking about me. Everything. Then here later in the chapter in verse 44 that we just read, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus wants everyone to know that what had happened to him was in direct fulfillment of the plan of God as revealed in the sacred writings, which we call now today the Old Testament. So the entirety of the Bible is pointing to Jesus. That's the point of this book that we have before us. The point of this book is Jesus. Nothing else. As uh, Old Testament scholar Alec Motyer said, he said it was Jesus who came from outside as the incarnate Son of God, Jesus who was raised from the dead as the Son of God with power, who chose to validate the Old Testament in retrospect and the New Testament in prospect, and who is himself the grand theme of the storyline of both Testaments, the focal point giving coherence to the total picture in all of its complexities. He is the climax as well as the substance and center of the whole. So, to say it in another way, to miss Jesus in the Bible outside of the Gospels, but I would say if you're missing Jesus in the Old Testament, you're going to miss him in the Gospels anyways, even though he appears there. But to miss Jesus in the Bible is to miss the entire point of the Bible. And to call yourself a Christian apart from being in his word, which, which when I say being in his word, I mean beyond this uh, 45 minutes and I'm up here preaching. Apart from being in his word is to really miss out on Christianity. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2, describes the one who is blessed. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. And we say, check, check, check. All my friends are good people. I'm not doing any of those things. And then you get to the second verse, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. And that's where we're like, oh man. If Jesus is the one who has saved you, why would you not want to know him more? Why would you neglect the very book that Jesus points to and says, everything here is written about me? There's nothing hidden about that. He's very clear. Jesus sees this as one of the most important things. Think about this. One of the first things that Jesus does after he comes back from the dead is not to throw a huge party but to open the scriptures to his disciples and say, look here, this all talks about me. The first thing he does. 
that alone should give you pause. That alone should make you think about how important the Bible actually is. This is why in verse 45, it says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Jesus wanted them to see clearly that the Bible spoke about him, or speaks about him, and particularly, specifically in our text, his resurrection. Verses 45 and 46. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The resurrection is not man-made. The resurrection is not some uh, off-the-wall theory that the disciples created so they could feel better about themselves. Now, the resurrection is by God's design and by God's power from the very beginning of time. And that truth changes everything. Whether you believe it or not, it changes everything. Now you have to consider that if your hope doesn't lie in the resurrection of Jesus, it definitely lies elsewhere. Okay, That's, that's logical. If, it, if you're here this morning and you're saying, my hope doesn't rely, lie in the resurrection of Jesus, well, it lies somewhere. You are hoping in something. And it may be your spouse, it may be your children, it may be school, or maybe you know, the future things that are to come you know, that you're hoping in, that things, you know, the best is yet to come, which I hate that statement. But you know, you're counting on the best. It's not here yet, but it's coming. And I can just keep telling myself that. But you're relying on something else other than the resurrected Jesus. So what you must consider is what sort of hope do you find in whatever else that is? Is it a hope that says it will never leave you or forsake you? Just evaluate it with me real quick. Does that thing you're hoping in, besides the resurrected Jesus, say, I will never leave you or forsake you? Um, is it a hope that says it never changes? I change every day. I'm so fickle. Is it a hope that gives itself for you, gives its life for you? Is it a hope that makes you right with God? That cleanses you from all unrighteousness? Well, let me just go ahead and say the answer to all of those questions is a resounding no. And you know that to be true. Because you already know how short all of these things you put your hope in come up. And they leave you hopeless. They leave you wanting. They leave you restless. And this is why Jesus ends the way he does in chapter 24, which I think is awesome. That not only does he say, um, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. There's no period there, there's a comma. And that repentance and forgiveness of, sh- of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So what Jesus says is you are to take this message of the hope of the resurrection and spread it to the nations. Because this is the greatest and the only hope for all of the world. That Christ came in the flesh, lived a life you could not, which means he was sinless and fulfilled the law perfectly, And because of this is the perfect sacrifice that our sins needed 
saving us from God's wrath that we did deserve and rose on the third day alive so that we could be reconciled to God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise and honor. You are worthy of everything that happens in our life, God. Uh, we, we praise you that, that you uh, were obedient to your Father. That you pulled on flesh and came to this earth uh, for us to be our perfect sacrifice. So that, so that our sins could be covered in your blood, so that we could be, could, could be saved from the wrath of God. And not only that, you didn't stay in the grave, but you rose so that we could have life, so that we could have, have, have a renewed and restored life with God. Not only now, but into eternity. And so I pray that as we leave this place today, that we would not forget the resurrection. That we would not uh, just kind of let this pass us by and then we'll pick it up again next year at this time. But that the resurrection would change us. That we would, be, that we would take this command that, that, that you gave to us here at the end of Luke, that we would take the, the hope of the resurrection message to the nations. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as we recite the, sing the doxology together.